All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Unqualified Opinion. Uh, I'm your host, Chiao. Um, today, we have Chris uh, McCann, um, founding partner at uh, Proof of Capital. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk about uh, a bunch of interesting topics today, including investing in, in the crypto space, uh, as well as um, possibly about China. Um, uh, so I guess we can start with the introduction uh, from Chris about himself, as well as, you know, uh, proof of capital. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so as I mentioned, my name is Chris McCann. I'm one of the founding partners of a venture capital fund called Proof of Capital. Uh, we do a lot of cross-border investments, specifically in the blockchain and crypto space, both between Asia and Silicon Valley. Uh, previous to this, I used to work at a much larger traditional venture capital fund called Greylock Partners. Mm -hmm. um, Greylock, if you're not familiar, was one of the Series A investors in Facebook, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Airbnb, a whole bunch of other companies, mostly on the consumer and enterprise side. Um, the long story short on how I kind of fell into this space was back in the 2014-15 timeframe, Greylock invested in three companies in the Bitcoin space. Uh, so we invested in Blockstream, Zappo, and Coinbase, kind of all within that time frame. Mm -hmm. And long story short, I just really fell in love with this sector afterwards. So that's why I left uh, the firm to start Proof of Capital. So you started Proof of Capital uh, when? Like right after Greylock and uh, I guess yeah. 2016? Oh, no. Um, so we, we announced the fund in... March of 2019. Okay. Um, so it's a relatively new okay, fund. Relatively new, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, do you mind sharing your investment thesis, your your philosophy in, in the crypto space? Yeah, of course, on a on a broad scale, again, like we tend to do a lot, a lot of cross-border stuff. And the main reason why is when you actually look at a lot of the uh, trading volume, distribution, adoption, sort of a lot of the sort of more experimental stuff, you actually see a lot more um, exper experimentation and real distribution in Asia versus here. Um, also, I guess really briefly, my two other partners, Edith Young, she used to do all the uh, Asia and greater China investments for 500 startups. Mm -hmm. And then our third partner, Phil Chen, he used to be a GP at Horizon Ventures at Li Kaxing out in Hong Kong. So we like to say at least one of us is in Asia at any at any given time. Uh, Phil spends most of his time out there. I'm mostly here in Silicon Valley and, and uh, eat it's about half half sort of between the both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of more specific areas that we tend to gravitate towards, uh, I'd call it put it into three buckets. Um, so one, everything around the fintech and financial infrastructure side. So think like exchanges, wallets, derivatives, lending, custody, that whole space generally. Um, secondly, we're probably a little unique in is we spend a fair amount of time in the uh, mining, hardware, and computation space. Uh, so whether that be the ASICs themselves, the foundries, the, the hash rate marketplaces, hash rate derivatives and instruments, or even financial firms servicing this industry. Uh, it's a very interesting and unique industry that's, again, mostly located in uh, Asia, not so much here in Silicon Valley. Um, and then the third one is we're really interested in all things on the privacy and self-sovereignty application side. Uh, so not so much like the 
privacy protocols or any of, any of that, but more the end user applications. So think like VPNs, secure communications, browsers, uh, messaging applications, sort of anything within that that realm. Those are like three broad buckets. And you know, again, like we mainly focus on seed and Series A type stuff. So you know, we'll also opportunity opportunistically talk to any you know, entrepreneurs who are building good stuff as well. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the first two uh, areas are clearly crypto focus, but the third one is not necessarily crypto or, or blockchain. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, uh, th- this is out of the, the the three areas. Like This is the one that I think is slightly further out, but actually has the most relation to the crypto world. Okay. Um, so for a few reasons. One, when you actually look at a lot of the, uh, the sort of usage of uh, more privacy preserving applications, um, there's a lot of overlap between the crypto world and the normal world. However, when you actually look at a lot of these applications, there's a lot of actual real distribution and consumer adoption of these things. Uh, Maybe take one specific category, just look at VPNs. VPNs, there's an existing market where people actually pay real dollars and subscriptions for it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very very numerically, uh, 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 like empirically important sector. Um, That being said, if you build these in more centralized fashions, the main concern from a user uh, of a VPN is the the centralized company could always be subpoenaed by the government and all those records would be uh, given to them, which sort of negates the point of using a VPN in the first place. And so in theory, if you can build these using a lot of the decentralized protocols and things that people in the crypto world are are working on, you could actually make much more secure applications by nature. Um, In that way, it's less vulnerable to all of this uh, uh, sort of uh, censorship and peering in uh, also by companies and by governments and all that stuff. So I actually feel the crossover is much higher than um, what we give it credit for. Um, But I agree, it's, it's more on the the consumer application side and slightly less than just the peer protocols and networks or any of that good stuff. So uh, specifically uh, VPN, for instance, uh, you mentioned the weakest link might be the fact that uh, the team building the VPN product is centralized and uh, can be subpoenaed by the government. What are some of the potential solutions for, for that problem? Yeah, so I guess a few things. And um, uh, one, I, I, I guess I should be slightly transparent. So we have incubated a company in the decentralized VPN space. Um, there's uh, no name, no no anything what about is, it yet. What does decentralized VPN mean? <laughs> uh, t- like on, on the technical point of view, yeah. if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, it's also, uh, it's a it's a, a really good question as well. So um, maybe sort of broadly in, in two strokes. So um, one, uh, like I said, the main weakest chain in the link is typically a lot of these VPN uh, companies. They're the one purchasing, running, and servicing all the servers where all the traffic flows through. And so the main thing on the decentralized side is if you could have that be run through by not them, but through either protocol or the cloud or you know a DAO type structure, just anything outside the control of a singular company, then when somebody wants to subpoena the records, there literally are no records because they're not the ones um, running the actual endpoints. Um, so like a sort of more concrete examples, think something like a Tor um, in the sense where there's no singular entity that that's running it, but actually putting some form of monetization or token structure on top of that to give real incentive to the end participants uh, for actually wanting to run these things. Um, secondly, I actually totally agree with you if the 
the the founders and the companies are very sort of out there and running this company, even if you do a lot of things on the technical level, there's still the risk on the political and company level. Um, and so also for that reason, the, the, the team in particular we're involved with, they're actually being very careful about that and actually might never even release the identities of who's actually working on this. Mm -hmm. um, because very similar to um, to like a Bitcoin, uh, you know, in, in Bitcoin's uh, instance, you know, if you want to, you know, maybe a quick contrast, Libra versus Bitcoin. If you want to, you know, put Libra on stage and, and, you know, put him in front of Congress, there's somebody to pull, yep. David Marcus. If you want to subpoena or, or put on the stage Bitcoin, who are you going to put on the stage? Exactly. There's no CEO, there's no board of directors, there's no shareholders. Um, so ideally, in its most ideal sense for a, for a real um, privacy technology, you would actually not want the founders or the developers of it to actually be known um, because you, again, don't want the risk of any one government or institution or sovereign nation be, to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the, the key takeaway from the last five minutes, uh, one thing I learned, which is very interesting, is um, the um, the use case of uh, decentralized computing or, or the value proposition of decentralized computing, which is the fact that if uh, you have something very sensitive, some information that's very sensitive, that you don't want um, any you know, government or regulators to, um, uh, to have access to very easily. In order, in order to protect uh, user information, user privacy, then you probably want to decentralize the computation, possibly the data storage uh, as well. So um, very interesting. Uh, tell us about... Um, how you view uh, U.S. Uh, versus Asia, um, the, uh, the status quo, as well as uh, how things are evolving potentially in the future? Yeah, um, so maybe like one uh, sort of high level context and then to, to answer your, your question specifically. Um, I, like I mentioned, I used to work at Greylock, much bigger traditional VC fund. And when you look at the Web2 space, you know, the majority of a lot of the, the significant companies in the spaces were all located in Silicon Valley. Um, here, it, it was very much the sort of hub of all things uh, on the Web 2 and Web 1 space and on the Internet side. Uh, and, and so much of the attention and focus was put on this. The thing that I sort of found the most fascinating when I first invested in Bitcoin in 2013 and I was doing a lot of these uh, investments at Greylock on the Bitcoin side is Silicon Valley is a hub, but definitely not the only one. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like it's not just the technology that tends to be distributed and decentralized. It's actually also the teams and the usage and all of that. And so again, if you take a more quantitative lens to this and look at something maybe just like a um, trading volume, trading volume in general tends to be mostly focused in Asia. Um, I know a lot of people like to discount a lot of the trading volume that happens in a lot of the Chinese exchanges. But even if you said 95% of it was wash trading, the remaining five would still be greater than all the U.S. exchanges combined. So when you say trading volume, uh, you like a trading volume in Asia, specifically you mean trading volume on Asian exchanges or exchanges that are founded uh, in Asia? Because you can, we can talk about like, you know, Binance and Huobi or OKX. Uh, Binance obviously is very distributed. It started in China. Uh, but who will be OKX? I think they have an operation in China, but again, they have like offices around the world. Yeah. So um, by trading volume, you really mean exchanges that started in Asia rather than users, like trading volume in terms of uh, user geographical uh, distribution. Um, this actually brings up a, a much broader, more interesting thing. But to answer your question specifically, I'm actually talking about the demand side. Um, so for me, like the only thing I 
like we like for, again from more of a investor venture capital perspective care about is the demand side users of these things mm -hmm. so when you look at a lot of the sort of uh um, quant funds trading funds arbitrage sort of market making firms a lot of the actual you know retail prosumer traders again most of those actually tend to be outside of the u.s um it's hard to um uh, uh, it's hard to corroborate and uh, uh, get all this data transparently. A lot of them, you have to be friends with some of these exchanges and know sure. some of the, 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 the user data and, and, and all that. But most of it actually tends to be outside, outside the U.S. Um, the, the, the more interesting one you, you brought up is a lot of these exchanges themselves maybe started in China, but for a lot of the previous restrictive rules that China was doing, a lot of them domiciled or sort of expanded outside of uh, uh, mainland China as well, whether mm -hmm. that be in Singapore or in Japan or uh, in many other sort of jurisdictions. And Binance is probably one of the, the most uh, sort of interesting example of them all. And I'm also slightly biased, I guess, uh, before Proof of Capital, um, I was an individual, uh, I, I was, did the pre-sale round for Binance itself. And I've actually held it for the majority of the time until now. And they in particular are probably one of the more aggressive companies and not just trying to decentralize themselves again on a technical level, but also on a company level mm -hmm. where they're trying to not be geographically in any sort of one place, but sort of encompass sort of the whole world. All uh, I think it's done on purpose. Like, it's, it's a strategic decision. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's very much on the for regulatory sort of arbitrage yes. reasons. Yeah. Um, so again, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, like you could have your opinion on how you think this market might shape out in the future, how close we are to real institutional adoption, like how much of the long-term trading volume will be um, located where. But again, very much today, I, I think most of the bigger exchanges that are servicing non-US customers, they tend to be doing much better from a demand side perspective. So you mentioned uh, trading volume. Um, what about use cases that are non-purely speculative? Uh, how do how does that do you see any differences between the different regions in the world? Yeah, um, uh, high-level answer, and then to answer your question specifically. So, w one, if you actually look at the sectors with the most amount of real adoption, usage, and revenue today, it's very much exchanges, financial infrastructure, trading, and I would argue mining. Um, those Which are, are all related to speculation. And sure. Trading. Yeah. Um, so those four sort of uh, uh, above and all you can point to with, you know, real users, real sort of money flowing through the system. Yeah. Everything outside of that is all early. Um, so if you look at anything on the sort of generalized DAP side or even like the DeFi side, which again is more fi financial sort of speculative stuff, but throw that in the bucket, um, gaming or even some of these privacy things, uh, none of them have measurable, empirical, um, uh, heavy usage today. Sure. Again, most of the games, it's all, you know, sub thousand, you know, users. And when you look at a, a lot of the demand side for a lot of these DeFi platforms, they're also, again, much smaller number of users, higher dollar values, but still uh, still it's early. So and frankly, I, people use DeFi to do margin trading. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, I think a, a fact that most people don't like to fully um, uh, appreciate or admit to themselves. But again, I, I like personally, I, I just tend to be much more empirical about this. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, what people are using a lot of these lending platforms for is basically two things shorting and leverage exactly um so they're all basically going back into the to the crypto ecosystem mm -hmm. um so again I, I think if you're 
the, the there's a you know we very much do uh, some of our investments based on like the reality of what is there today and some more of these future things which for us tends to be much more on the the privacy type stuff but of course we keep an open ear and eye out to a lot more of the other consumer applications but there's nothing measurable that you can point to mm-hmm. yet. What about um, something like store of value, transfer of wealth? It's you could argue that it's speculative, but it is there's a real utility there, right? Like if, you know, the, a, a cryptocurrency as a way to store your your wealth in a way that um, uh, with very strong property rights, basically guaranteed by cryptography. Yeah. Do, do you do you see that kind of uh, adoption at all um, in Asia versus U.S. or el- elsewhere? Um, yeah, actually. Um, uh, uh, not necessarily a high number of people, but the people who do strongly, yes. Um, uh, again, I kind of actually put that more in the like fintech and financial bucket. Maybe it makes sense to sort of split that out in, into its own one. But one, one specific example without naming any um, specific names, uh, I, I was just personally like really fascinated about the mining space. And actually here at San Francisco Blockchain Week, the topic I'm going to talk on is giving the people a crash course here to really learn about the mining industry. Yeah. I think it's one of those industries that's very, very underappreciated. And again, mostly centered in Asia, not so much here. Yeah. And I think the combination of Asia hardware and mining makes it hard for more technologists to really grapple upon. But the the interesting story to talk about is um, like I became friends with a lot of these larger scale miners, and when you actually really have like a real conversation with them, it's it's maybe to one most extreme like it's actually pretty crazy. But some of these big miners they actually denominate their wealth in the amount of Bitcoin that they have. They don't even uh, and and it's kind of. it's kind of hard to piece this out, but it's like they don't even think about the fiat value. It's like their whole point of existence is to accumulate more Bitcoin because Bitcoin is outside of the existing system. And so for them, the Bitcoin is actually much, 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 much more valuable. So they don't they don't liquidate after uh, acquiring. There's there's certainly there's a. uh, you can't put them all into a bucket. There's definitely a, a spectrum. On one end of the extreme, you have people who are doing it like just for pure um, profitability reasons. Uh, so they're trying to get cheap energy. They're selling the Bitcoin as soon as possible. They're pocketing it all into to fiat. And for them, it's just a, it's just a margin sort of fixed income game. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely some, and we know a few very large miners that know their whole thing is to actually liquidate as very few as they can. And their whole sort of point is to accumulate more and more. And they actually do all sort of other services and trading and all that, again, with the, 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 the longer term goal of like stacking stats, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people talk about that more in the like retail sense, but there's actually like large miners who are doing that, that same concept as well. Um, so again, like when you look at the raw number of people who are denominating their wealth in Bitcoin, it's probably very few. But there are definitely people who treat that very seriously. Um, and the at least in the longer sort of term uh, sort of value of Bitcoin, like the more and more people that actually live, denominate their wealth and sort of earn within the Bitcoin ecosystem, like that's the real thing that tips the scale. It's not just people who like open accounts on Coinbase and like don't do anything. It's the people who are actually much more longer term holders and believe in this new sort of alternative system. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. I I, uh, I talked to uh, quite a few miners uh, this week 
um, someone told me that um, some miners were so at the at the beginning of the year uh, when Bitcoin crashed to like 3200 uh, a lot of miners were actually mining at a at a loss yep. and they continued to do it they didn't shut down uh, anything they just continued to, <laughs> to accumulate Bitcoin uh, at a loss in terms of fiat so um, it feels like there are some quote-unquote crazy people who really uh, denominate their, their um, wealth in terms of uh, Bitcoin. And um, yeah, super interesting. Uh, where is... Uh, so we talked about the status quo, uh, Asia versus US. Uh, how, how do you think things will change in the next couple of years? Yeah, um, I guess this dovetails into some of the like more interesting news that has come out exactly. into into China with the most obvious one being Xi Jinping's comments uh, directly about the blockchain space. Um, again, like being a, a, like my partner, Edith Young, who spends a lot more time in mainland China, she has a lot more um, specific thoughts around some of the like policies and, you know, and people and like she reads, writes, speaks all, all, all Mandarin as well. So um, a lot because a lot of it in China tends to be not just what is said but what is unsaid and, and kind of you reading, have to read between the lines reading yeah. between the lines yeah. and um, so I, I will I will say up front I am not an expert in that by any means but from a from a more Western perspective I think the most interesting thing is actually not any of the specific comments or blockchain stuff or open versus closed or what does this mean for Bitcoin I actually just think the most important thing is uh, China in general again for sort of very broad generalized generalizations tends to be slightly a much more top-down um, uh, yep. uh, uh, governmental system. And so when literally the person at the top is talking about bl blockchain stuff, everybody from all you know forms of government and industry and companies, they now feel that, hey, we actually have the green light to do some of these things now. A lot of it will probably be, you know, closed and permissionless stuff. Mm -hmm. Some of it might be open and, and, you know, more experimental things. But I think it's finally given the free room to allow people to do much, much more experimentation sort of in the space and not feel like it's either not legitimate or not feel like they have to hide about it. But you're seeing like uh, companies uh, and entrepreneurs being much more openly uh, uh, talking about what they do. So um, at least from that perspective, I think it's one of the more interesting catalyzing events more around like the entrepreneurs building in the space um so there's the part where uh you know xi jinping says let's go all in on, on blockchain and and everyone will you know all the entrepreneurs now will feel the urge and the safety to start innovating in this space but there's also the other part that is um this the central bank issued uh state currency um what, what is your take on that because these two things are 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 fairly different like one is like sort of a bottom-up innovation right like blockchain you know and the other one is like more top-down uh the state uh central bank currency so what what's your take yeah um we uh not everybody but we know quite a few um uh uh, uh without i guess like any specifics like we know quite a few projects and people sort of within the space who are um, sort of in the middle of all this, and and again, like I, I like um, uh, like I, I'm much more of a like my partner Edith has much more specifics on on that. Like I sort of glean a lot of that stuff from her and a lot of our partners in it. Mm -hmm. But to me, like it feels much more real. Um, and and I actually said like on the 
day that Libra announced itself, I actually wrote a post and my prediction was I thought that Libra would be delayed for um, regulatory and political reasons, not for any technical reasons. Sure. And, and then the second thing I said, I think um, Nathaniel Whittemore. Yeah. Whittemore. Yeah. yeah. NLW. <laughs> NLW. Yeah. Uh, he, he asked me to like make some predictions, I, I think like a month or two ago on like what I thought would happen by, before the end of the year. And one of them is I thought that the the China form of their own form of Libra, whatever that whatever that would take, would launch before Libra's version. And it looks like both of those are probably likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, so again, like to, to your point, that is a much more top-down sort of uh, 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 approach to it as opposed to the sort of bottom-up entrepreneurs building it. However, um, from more of a, a macroeconomic standpoint, I think it's also important to realize that there's a lot of reasons why, you know, blockchain and the technology and sort of all this stuff is interesting as well. But there's also a huge amount of interest to um, to sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, knock the U.S. dollar down from its uh, um, worldwide uh, reserve currency status. And uh, I would have to imagine that, you know, people more on the economic level see this as a good excuse um, to try to do that. Because if you could actually get more and more people to adopt the RMB, whether that be in digital form or through a lot of like their Belt and Road initiatives or, you know, even just within the sector, you're slowly sort of putting that out there where, hey, it's not only about the dollars or reserve currency, but maybe it should be a basket or maybe you should include RMB or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's sort of within that direction. So I, I think, too, like there's definitely like my main interest is more from the sort of crypto and blockchain side. But I think it's also important just to have a um, sort of a, a sort of a gut check that there's much, much, much larger political forces in here too. Uh, clearly, it's, it's in the CCP's best interest to uh, push for uh, RMB as as the global reserve currency, at least the second global reserve currency. Um, but I can't wrap my head around why they would use uh, blockchain or even a private blockchain or distributed ledger technology to. Like how does that help with a, with a global reserve currency? Yeah, um, I, I guess maybe like the, the again, I don't necessarily have an answer for this, but maybe the most positive and the most negative side from the most negative standpoint that they don't need a blockchain at all. It's just a good excuse cover to do this. Um, and you could actually make the probably the pretty same argument to Libra as well, that they've actually attempted to do digital currency stuff before without a blockchain. Why do you need a blockchain? Um, since it's just pegged one to one or like to a basket of one, you could sort of do it with a database. You don't necessarily need it. Um, but because there's all this other stuff sort of circling around, you can't use the word and the impetus of blockchain um, to sort of shove this through behind like uh, uh, and, and sort of make it happen without um, uh, without sort of upsetting too many people on either side. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, like the most pessimistic view on it. The more optimistic view, which again, I agree is on, uh, on the optimistic uh, standpoint is maybe some of these things will start off completely um, permissionless and closed with a, you know very limited participants. However, in the much, much longer term, it might actually open up to more open or permissionless systems or might open up to not just be one currency or multi-currency or maybe even not even necessarily sovereign currencies, but maybe even include digital assets like, you know, like Bitcoin and like other things. Because just like the forces of 
uh, governments to want their own currency to be that reserve currency status. Um, for, current, for countries that aren't necessarily a, as big, there could also be incentives for, you know, maybe Bitcoin to be that um, mm -hmm. because Bitcoin is outside of the control of not just the U.S., but also China, like no, no one party or anybody um, can exert their control in it. Mm -hmm. So the, the most positive um, sort of viewpoint on it is this is really just a stepping stone for something much uh, broader and much important, which ties into a lot of the the um, the, the ideals and, and, and sort of viewpoints from people on the Bitcoin and crypto side. But uh, again, to take a step back, like I, I don't know what the answer is. And I think that's the that's going to be like the most interesting to see thing to see play out over the next five to 10 years. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, sw switching the gear a little bit. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about your um, how you feel about investing in crypto versus investing uh, at, at Greylock. Like how, how are the two environments different? Because sometimes I feel like, you know, a lot of crypto natives uh, view crypto assets, crypto networks and investments as if nothing else in the world exists. Like it's not a standalone isolated world. Uh, crypto is not competing. Like Bitcoin is not competing with Ethereum, not just with Ethereum. All the crypto are competing with the existing solutions. Uh, existing uh, products out there, right? So curious what your, if you have any insight on that front. Yeah, so there are a lot of things that are, um, uh, I guess like fundamentally different in like the web one or web two space. You didn't really have these native token assets that were trading on a daily basis with prices or any of this. Um, you didn't see as much emphasis on like the protocols or open standards or developer ecosystems that tend to be just more closed, um, straightforward companies. Um, however, like with all of those differences, I, I think at least personally at the end of the day, like the thing that is mostly going to matter is again, like the demand side is who's actually using this. What are they using it for? Um, you know, how much money is flowing through the system? How much payments are being, you know, flowed through this? How many people are holding this stuff? How many people are playing this game? Because mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it, it really all goes back to sort of fundamental um, usage and demand side drivers. Um, and, and so like maybe one quick story. Um, uh, I, I won't name any names, but uh, I was at a. I was speaking at um, DevCon in Osaka, and I was a panel with a whole bunch of other crypto VCs. And the panelists asked, "Hey, like, what are some of the areas and things you guys are interested in?" And everybody else, again without naming names, said, "You know, we're interested in open protocols that really focus on developer experiences that enable new things." And then the moderator asked me, and I was like. I sort of feel like the odd one out here, but I really like companies with users and distribution that eventually make revenue in some way. Well, everyone <laughs> else said was on the supply side. What you care about is the demand, demand side. side. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah. So from uh, uh, again, I think there's lots of uh, um, differences and things that you make it unique and all that. But like, really, a lot of the questions that you know, from from like a proof of capital standpoint, which we try to understand is, do the entrepreneurs really understand or can think through or can show demonstrable traction on the demand side, um, whatever that means for their product or service or platform? I think that's the that's one of the the few areas that really has not had enough emphasis on in this space. Mm -hmm. Uh, so religiously, I want to ask you a question on behalf of our our, our audience, um, because as a VC, uh, you obviously have access to some deal flows that the average person does not have access to. And the average, average person has access to uh, basically open protocols, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, other crypto assets. I know you don't focus on these things because you mentioned like 
you know, uh, basically picks and shovels uh, a type of uh, private uh, private investments. But I'm curious what you think about uh, the public crypto assets. Um, how do you what, what is your view on, on these things? Yeah, from an investment point of view, it's a good question. Yeah, I, I guess with the context that um, proof of capital, it's a venture capital fund. We primarily do equity investments. Um, we actually really, really don't do a lot of. Uh, um, we can't opportunistically do token or more liquid things, but like we're not, we're not trading. We're not do, doing the arbitrage. We're not a hedge fund. So we kind of look slightly more like a, 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 a sort of established VC fund. We're not a, a sort of crypto VC fund with all that entails. So I guess with that that context in mind, again, I, I tend to look empirically more on like the demand side of things. And when you look at the um, the things on the public market, which actual trading volume or usage or holders, there's really only maybe three assets with any any sort of a um, level of fundamental adoption. Um, so one is the obvious one. It's Bitcoin. Um, two is the other obvious one that everybody loves to hate, which is USDT. Whether you like it or not, there's a lot of real... I thought you were going to say Ethereum, but I, I prefer the USDT. Answer, yeah, <laughs> whether or not you like it, like there's a lot of um, real usage of it, particularly, yep. particularly in Asia. Yep. Um, and then third, uh, you can make the argument that you can put Ethereum in that, in that bucket as well. Mm -hmm. Everything else on the long tail side of things, um, uh, there's there's not a lot of, uh, um, again, when you look at the, like if you're building like a smart contract platform and you look at the applications on top and the users across that, there's very little demand side of it. Um, and then I'll throw the, the, the one wild card in there, not just because uh, I personally invested, but also I just think is one of the more interesting ones. You have these like quasi, not necessarily native um, utility token assets, but not necessarily um, equity things, uh, like things that look like the Binance token. Um, so the, and if you could broaden out, it's the exchange tokens in general. Um, we, we also invested in, a, uh, for Proof of Capital, we invested in a derivatives exchange company called FTX. Um, they were started by Sam Bankman, who was the original founder of the Alameda Research Group. Um, and uh, uh, he was uh, launched this derivatives exchange to directly compete against BitMEX. And within four months of launch, they just recently crossed a billion dollars a day in daily trading volume, which is really, really, really impressive for a new uh, challenger exchange. And a lot of the reason is because Sam in particular had a really, really good handle on the demand side of, of the uh, of the of the exchange and marketplace, he had a really large following of traders. Um, Sam, I don't know if you know him. Sam loves to um, live stream himself trading. He loves to tweet about trading. He loves to talk about trading in his Telegram group. He just like loves trading. And um, all of our conversations with him, it was just very very clear that the founder product fit was very very high with him. Um, so again, I I, I kind of put these when you look at the native. Um, uh, crypto assets like Bitcoin, USDT, uh, Ethereum, I sort of put in that. And then the one slightly uh, kind of odder one with an asterisk, I put all the exchange tokens in that in that basket because they tend to have slightly BNB different and, and so on. Yeah, they tend to have slightly different dynamics than some of the other um, uh, currencies that are going after the more pure money or computation side of things. How do how do exchange tokens accrue value? Yeah. Um, so. Right now, what they crudely, what most of them crudely do, um, not all of them, but most of them, is they tend to take some percentage of either trading volume or revenue or profit 
And that goes back in to buy back and burn the existing uh, uh, supply of the, the tokens that are available. And so if I have a, you know, a billion token of supply, I would continuously buy back those tokens all the way down. So it's kind of like a, um, I should be careful with words. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a it's a it's a it's a claim or it's a, a some indication on the the underlying revenue or volume that that exchange is doing, and mm-hmm. they're trying to tether that to the value of the token without doing it directly on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so in that standpoint, you could it's slightly easier to value in the sense that what you're really making a bet on is the future volume and revenue of those exchanges and the different product lines that they have. Um, it's a little bit harder in the sense um, uh, uh, because it's not directly tied. You always, in some sense, have to trust that the numbers and what they're reporting is actually yes. accurate since none of it is directly on chain, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some trade-offs with doing it. It's not necessarily a, a perfect system, but it's one of the... It's one of the more unique token models that have been sort of developed o- over the years that have accrued value in some sense that are outside of either just pure store value or pure um, smart contract platform. And, and one thing uh, to be potentially skeptical about BNB, uh, I haven't looked at this myself, but I, I, I've heard that um, they burn a token off of their treasurer, mm. which is not circulating in the first place. Yep. So... Um, in theory, that shouldn't have a much effect on the on the price on the value accrual, but I guess um, the value accrual might obviously can come from speculation, but also from uh, actual usage of BNB, like you know, as a discount token to or to investing in their IEOs, that type of stuff. So these are other ways to accrue value for these uh, uh, exchange tokens. Yeah, uh, Binance again with the caveat that I, I did participate in the presale way back in the day, and I, I still hold uh, um, uh, the, that portion of BNB token as well. But uh, they also do, um, uh, and and maybe I'll just give the context. Like one of the, I was actually quite skeptical about the token model when I first read it. Like I was no, by no means fully convinced when I saw like the first version of the, the white paper on the Binance side. But the, the main reason why I, I just held it for so long is out of any of the teams in the space, whatever CZ and Binance says they're going to do, they always do. And they usually do it ahead of schedule. Just the the execution. Yeah, just the raw execution speed that this team has. Like you very, very, very rarely see that of any other team in the space. And then um, to 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 sort of riff on your previous comment, um, one of the things they're doing now, which TBD on how it works, but they're actually using BNB not as the 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 native discount token, but they're using that as the more of the native element in all the other services they're doing. So when you talk about staking and lending and a lot of their deck stuff, they're using BNB kind of as the 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 sort of main core underlying token in all of those. And so that also uh, is more velocity sinks all inside the system. Um, so again, they they tend to be much more on the experimentation sort of uh, side of it and yep. TBD on like which one of these things actually work. But out of anybody, like they're one of the most aggressive teams into trying and launching new things out there. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, uh, basically we only have like maybe three crypto assets with the uh, product market fit, right? Bitcoin, uh, stablecoin, and arguably Ethereum um, and maybe exchange uh, tokens as well. Um, but uh, when, when it comes to investing, it is one thing to say, okay, these, these assets have product market fit. Um, it, it is yet another to, to say, 
uh, I mean, ultimately, making money by investing is uh, part part of it is forecasting the future, right? Is forecasting uh, or predicting which assets may actually find product market fit in the future. Do you have any sense, <laughs> any insight into uh, you know which assets? Or which crypto networks might find uh, product market fit? Um, so again, with the caveats of proof of capital, primarily uh, equity investments, like we don't we don't do sure. anything on the 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 token side. And again, I, I I I'm not giving trading advice. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not <laughs> I, I'm not any of those things. Um, but maybe a more um, a slightly different uh, frame of lens to 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 look at that on. Um, to me. Everybody talks about Bitcoin as a as a as a store of value, store of wealth. We see some of that, but honestly, like the way I think about it more, it's on the future option as a store, a store of wealth or store of means. Yep. Um, and if you look at the TAM of okay, how big is gold, or how big is a reserve currency, or how big is a um, uh, uh, sort of any uh, any other uh, uh, existing native asset out there? I think one of the reasons why a lot of these larger macro traders get so excited about this is just the TAM is so exponentially large. Yep. Um, so maybe they only have a you know one percent shot chance at actually becoming that. But the asymmetric upside of that is so dramatically big that you would take that risk every single time. Um, that's actually much more similar to a, to a venture capital bet to, to some extent, where uh, uh, you look at this company, it's an early stage company, you know, it's only valued at $10 million or whatever. It has the potential upside chance to be worth a multi-billion dollar company, probably a 95% chance of failure. But that 5% chance of upside, when it wins, it wins so big that it yep. pays back all the other um, pays back all the other bets. Um, so, so for me, like from a TAM perspective, uh, um, uh, Bitcoin, whether you hate it or like it or trying to compete against it, it has the biggest TAM by far versus all the other things out there. Um, USDT and sort of stable coins in general are really going after more of that dollarization um, story. So you can probably put some um, market number and how big you think that'd be. And uh, Ethereum, their narrative has shifted a lot. But at the end of the day, Ethereum is really the computational gas in the system to run uh, applications. Um, th there is a large camp of Ethereum people that are trying to change that more towards ETH as money or money in the system. Uh, TBD on sort of how that... I think that's, that's the right narrative to push for. Yeah, um, I, I think it has some time to play out on that side. But you can put to uh, you can put some sort of TAM on uh, uh, how big you think the computational platform itself would be. And then maybe you can put some discount on how big you think the monetary premium could be on that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I put that on the more ar arguable section and people definitely argue about that. Mm -hmm. I, I like the analogy you drew between VC and... Uh, or VC style investing and, and investing in Bitcoin, for instance, it's a, it's a metric return. But I think uh, a major difference between the two is as a VC, you have access to a lot of deals. So when you diversify your investments, uh, you can like, let's say you make 10 VC investments, one of them uh, or none of them will, will fail. And one of them will have an asymmetric return of like hundred X. But in the, in the crypt, public crypto asset space, there aren't that many to choose from for, for the average investor. But the caveat there is, as a VC, uh, not everyone has access to the same deal. So you only have you, you can only invest like only so many investors can can invest in, in one deal. But on the public side, you have six billion people who can um, uh, invest in this one thing. And if everybody believes in the same narrative, then 
it'll just become a self-fulfilling pro prophecy, right? So um, that's that's one insight I just I just had, but su super interesting. Yeah, uh, and maybe one comment to 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 riff on that, like when we first started uh, started Private Capital, um, you know, we talked to a lot of investors and people more on the institutional side, a lot of companies, and you know, more traditional people that. Um, you know, might not have any exposure, sort of any um, uh, sort of education on this space. And um, the most sort of more obvious, but more interesting sort of insight in that world is whenever you talk about blockchains and crypto and all that, the first thing they always default to is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And whether you like it or not, I think it's that I think that's why you see so much emphasis on a on a market cap side, on a trading volume side. Again, like you know, Bitcoin is still king. I think it's um, there's a lot of people who have tried to dethrone Bitcoin, whether it's through you know technology or all that. But Bitcoin is much much more than just the technology itself. Um, it's what, a brand. Yeah, whether you call it the brand or you know the meme or the belief or you know or or, or any of that good stuff, it still has the majority of mind share and market share. Yep. And that is a very, very, very hard thing to compete against. And so maybe that's why, like, like at Proof of Capital, we invest in companies on the equity side. Like, we are not trying to invest in, you know, protocols that are trying to unseat or unthrown or be faster than Bitcoin because that's just the wrong, it's the wrong thing. Yeah. Like, you know, people don't care if your thing has a million TPS or whatever. Like, that's not why people are holding their wealth in Bitcoin. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different thing. Um, and so, yeah, we're much more interested in the, company layer and the the thing sort of building on top of this or using this or servicing in this, this industry or around it um because there's there's so many interesting companies in this space and uh, on the protocol level stuff like you know maybe one of these wins but it's just it's just such a oversaturated overhyped sector that that we personally did not want to get into awesome any prediction for 2020 <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have to be price obviously yeah. price is the, the thing that people care about but <laughs> Um, well, my first one, actually, I'll, 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 I'll do, I'll do one maybe. Um, uh, what I mentioned before when, uh, Libra came out, I, I, I thought it would be delayed for regulatory reasons. My second one, when NLW asked me is I thought that the China, China's version of Libra would launch first. Mm -hmm. My third one is, uh, and there's been some of this, this come out already, but you know, I, I've said some of this for a longer time is I think either at the end of 2019 or potentially really early on in 2020, uh, there will be one of the first significant companies that go public on the Bitcoin or crypto side. And again, that will probably most likely be in Asia, not so it's much here. Probably gonna be Canon, right? Yeah, there's, um, the mining ones are the closest to all their filings. Some of them have, uh, 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 a lot of drama and sort of controversy <laughs> going on. So, and, you know, they previously have tried to do it before at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and, yeah. you know, weren't able to do that. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a done deal, but I think you'll at least see um, one company, uh, one company go public. Because um, right now, from a more uh, public uh, institutional investor side, there's actually very, um, there's very few ways to actually get native exposure into this. There's like Grayscale and I think... Um, What's the one in Europe? There's one in Europe, CoinShares does. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Um, there's like a few of these instruments that are tracking Bitcoin, but there's no real fundamental like company bet in this space. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think very shortly we'll see some company become public on the public market equity side um, to really open the floodgates and give people exposure on that level in this space as well on the company side. Awesome. 
That was a lot of fun.、Uh, thank you, Chris. I I、uh, definitely learned a lot. Do you want to say a、uh, last word? Yeah, actually, my 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 last word will actually be a slightly different one. So, in addition to Proof of Capital, I actually write a an email newsletter called Relay Node. So it's just RelayNode.io. Um, we cover um, events,、uh, technical technical meetups,、uh, conferences, and、uh, content in specific ge- ge- geographies all around the world.、Um, so I help write for the Silicon Valley San Francisco edition, but we also cover、uh, Hong Kong and China and Singapore.、Uh, we have a New York edition, Chicago, London, sort of all all the major、um, important ecosystems around the space. And if you're listening, if you're interested at all in the space or thinking about it, my number one thing would just be. Go to one of these meetups or events and actually meet people in the space. Try things. Go to a hackathon. Build stuff. Do an MVP. Like there's still not enough、uh, builders and doers in the space. There tends to be more of an emphasis on the you know trading or speculative or investment side. Like I'd love to see like more sort of real entrepreneurs come into the space. So go like get active, get involved, sign up for that, and and, and just yeah go go do things in the space. Awesome. Thank you, Chris, and、uh, thanks everybody for、uh, listening to、uh, Unqualified Opinion. This is your host, Chow. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern Time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at Two Bit Idiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week. <laughs>